Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Today's text will be 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Again, uh, since we just finished up with uh, part three of Game of Thrones, our study in uh, Samuel Kings and Chronicles, we're just taking a couple of weeks here just doing standalone teachings. And uh, I'm doing a couple of weeks from questions that people submitted. And this week's question is going to revolve around the idea of Christian citizenship. What does that mean? So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. I'll be reading from the New International Version. You can uh, follow along up on the screens and also in your Bible. Hear now the word of your God, your Creator, and your Redeemer. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. One of the things I enjoy about teaching is when I get to study and uncover things, and sometimes it's things that people don't even know, that they're not aware of. Uh, And this week as I was reflecting on this, I thought of something that probably none of you have ever been aware of, um, that there's an election coming up here in America. And none of y'all have heard anything about that, I'm sure. I mean, because nobody's talking about it. Um, Obviously, that's a joke because it seems to be consuming everybody's attention. We do this increasingly often. In fact, I'll make a prediction on the first Wednesday in November, we're going to begin the next presidential election cycle. It's going to start immediately thereupon. And it consumes many people today. And so we wanted to take, this was one of the first questions that was submitted to us. And it asked about what it means to be a Christian citizen, but the, the person that submitted it said they would like to have a teaching that goes beyond voting and staking out positions on issues. How are we citizens of heaven and citizens of earth at the same time faithfully? How do we do that? What does it mean? How do we live? So what is our call in this age as Christians, and what does Scripture actually tell us we're supposed to do? So I debated Jeremiah 29 and 1 Peter 2 would be my go-to text on that. I've uh, talked quite a bit on Jeremiah 29, what what I think is one of the most important texts for Christians from the time of Jesus' ascension until his return in the great white throne of judgment. One of the most important texts is Jeremiah 29. I'm going to mention I'd encourage you to read that because that is a text that is for our day. It, It describes our situation and who we are for all Christians wherever they live, Uh, but we're going to look at 1 Peter 2 today. Now, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12, but I want to back a step up to understand what Peter's doing when we come at this point in the letter, and he gives us the foundation for everything else that's going to be said today is the gospel. Now, he he summarized this in verses 9 and 10, which is the conclusion of the first part of the letter, and Peter tells us, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, 
but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, Peter is here kicking off a new section in verse 11. Virtually all commentators agree on that. And so verses 9 and 10, he's summarizing everything that's gone on before. And the whole first section is, is built around the gospel. And the second section of the letter that runs from 2.11 all the way up into the middle of chapter 4 at uh, 4.11, that whole section deals with, well, then how do we live in light of the gospel? What does that mean? If, if this is the gospel, how do we now live? How then should we live? And the first section, which is in a focus on the gospel, comes to a crescendo there in verses 9 and 10, and he says, look, he's writing to a bunch of Gentiles. These are not Jews he's writing to, but he says, I want you to understand something. Before this, you were not part of God's people, but the amazing thing is every one of those phrases, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, people belonging to God, those were all phrases that were used to describe Israel in the Old Testament. And he's now saying, you who were Gentiles and you were cut off from God, you are now God's Israel. You are now God's chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation. You belong to God because he's called you out of darkness and he's called you into his wonderful light. This is the gospel and it is central to everything Peter is saying here. And then in verse 10, he, in fact, he goes back and these are references to Hosea, the prophet's children. When Hosea had two children, he had to name one of them not my people and one of them not loved or not receiving mercy. And, uh, and then what happens here is Peter says, that's what you were. You were not loved. You are outside of God's covenant. But now in Christ Jesus, you are loved by God. And before you had not received mercy, you were, you were not a people. Now you are a people. You had not received mercy. You were not under God's covenant love, but now you are under the covenant love of God. This is what the gospel has done. And it is important to understand this. There's confusion sometimes today. The gospel isn't everything that we can't say, you know, me loving my wife is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus lived for me, Jesus died for me, Jesus was raised for me, and Jesus is at the right hand of God. The gospel is not about you, and it's not about me. You can't be the gospel. You can't do the gospel. What you can do is you can respond affirmatively to the gospel, and then once you do that, the gospel changes everything. It affects everything you and I do. You cannot conceive of any area of life that a Christian would say, that's not affected by the gospel. Everything is affected by the gospel. The gospel changes everything. And so Peter is beginning by saying this. It's the foundation for how we live. The gospel is the lens through which we view life. That's why he's taken the first chapter and a half to say, this is the gospel. This is what is central. This is who you are in light of what God has done. And now he's going to say, well, now look how it changes the way you view every other part of life. It's the lens through which you view life. It's the foundation on which you build the rest of life. So we cannot turn to our call as Christian citizens apart from the gospel. The gospel is central to everything. The gospel has got to fill my heart. The gospel has got to fill my mind. And the gospel has got to fill my mouth. Okay? Now, let me be very precise. If you know me very well, I love God's word. Genesis 1-1 to the last verse in Revelation. But I'm not even talking about all the word of God doing that. I'm talking specifically about the gospel, that Christ 
uh, lived, that Christ died, that Christ was buried, that Christ was raised, that Christ is ascended. That gospel that saves has got to fill your heart, your mind, and your mouth constantly, and we live in light of it. And the rest of Scripture is understood in light of that because all of the Scripture is about who? Jesus, all of it. It's not about Israel. It's not about America. It's not about, it's about Jesus. That's what the Scripture's about. And everything else is in light of that. I'm going to go ahead and now get on to Christian citizenship because I can preach on gospel all day long. But it is foundation. You cannot understand Christian citizenship. You can't understand Christian anything apart from the gospel. It is how we live, how we breathe, how we move. Now, Peter, therefore, having built that, goes and he says, well, you've got a new status now. And that new status, he tells us, is that we are aliens and strangers. And this is central to our Christian citizenship. Notice in verse 11, dear friends, or it's literally in the Greek, beloved, dearly, dearly beloved, uh, because you're loved. He's not only saying they're his friends, they're now the friends of God. They're beloved by God. And he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. So the first result of the gospel we saw in verses 9 and 10 is we're now part of God's people. We are God's nation. The church, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are God's nation, the church. That's the first result of the gospel. But the second result of the gospel that Peter turns to is that we're now aliens and strangers in our own country, okay? You were aliens and strangers to God. Now you're citizens in God's own nation. But as a result of that, you're now an alien and stranger in the very nation that you felt so at home in before. We are aliens and strangers in our own country. Unless we think, well, Peter just, you know, had a little spare parchment, so he put that phrase in there. It's how he opened the letter. The letter opens by saying, I'm writing to God's exiles, to God's alien strangers who are scattered throughout the earth. And he's going to end the letter by referring to those who are in, she who was in Babylon sends your greetings. He's not talking about Babylon in the Old Testament. That city was destroyed at that point. He's talking about Rome. And he's saying, look, we're in our exile. All of us are aliens and strangers. All of us are in exile. And the same two words here are used. Just so you know, they're only used twice in the Old Testament when they translated it into Greek. They use these same two words. The same phrase is only used twice. The most important and foundational one is in Genesis 23, 4. This is when Abraham wanted to have a place to bury Sarah. And he's, he's trying to talk to the men of the land, and he says, I need to buy a place to bury my wife, and I'm just an alien and stranger among you. Peter says, that's what you are. When you were brought in to become a citizen in God's kingdom, you're like Abraham dwelling among the people who do not know God. That is your status. You are an alien and a stranger. And so the idea is those who reside in a foreign land, a resident alien, a sojourner, a pilgrim, whatever term you want to use, and you can use, we've all got different ones, but this is what the, the phrase means. Now, there's a bunch of implications before we see. Peter's going to unpack this for us in 11 and 12 and really all the way through chapter 3 to say this is what that means in all these areas of life. But I want to turn a little bit on this phrase and think of the implications. Now, the first implication of what he's saying in verses 9 and 10 and then verse 11 is to be at home with God is to be a sojourner in this world. To be at home in this world is to be an exile from God. And there is no in-between. Now, here's what we want to do. See, I want to 
I want to do Christian citizenship, and I want to say, here's how I can be at home with God and at home here in America. Well, you can't. It's not possible. And when you're doing that, you're deceiving yourself. To be at home with God is to be an exile on the earth. To be at home on the earth is to be exiled from God. Now, I'll leave it to you which one of those is preferable. I'll take being an exile in the country of my birth, the country that I proudly served as an officer in the Marine Corps, went to Naval Academy and did all of that kind of stuff. This isn't because I'm anti-America. It doesn't matter where you are. It does not matter what nation you reside in. If you'd have been living in America, if you'd have been in Independence Hall in July 1776 when they were signing it and the ink was still wet on the document, you're an exile. You're an alien living in Babylon because that's what we all are. Every nation is Babylon. And that moves to the, the next implication is now, that doesn't mean, let me be careful to say, that doesn't mean we're no longer American citizens. Still an American citizen. But it does mean my first citizenship is heaven. That's my first citizenship. It gets my priority. And where American citizenship and heavenly citizenship conflict, there is no, well, I got to figure out what to do. I do heavenly citizenship, and then let the chips fall where they may. The, and so the next implication is this allegiance to the kingdom of God is going to affect every area of how I fulfill my role as a citizen of the United States. This is why it begins, and Peter starts this way before he's going to get into all kinds of areas of how we live our life. But he says the first thing you got to understand is you're an alien, you're a stranger, because that's going to affect how you do everything else. But it also means, and this is important, let me say this and please hear me carefully on this. America is not, will not be, never has been a Christian nation. Now let me say why. Because it's a theological impossibility. God only has one nation. What is that nation? Say it louder. What is God's nation? The church, there is no other God's nation, never has been. Let me give you an example. If I stopped at the docks this afternoon and a woman walked up to me and said, hi, Brett, you're my husband. And this was not my wife, Linda, talking. I might say, ah, uh, you got me confused. I'm married to Linda. And she said, well, I know that, but you're still my husband because and I say, no, I'm not. No, I'm not your husband. I'm married to Linda. And she says, no, 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 you don't understand. I decided and I made a covenant with you. I declared you're my husband. I even signed a piece of paper. I did it. I got all kinds of witnesses and I declared you're my husband. Do you think I would say at that point, well, I guess so. I guess I'm your husband. What would my response be? I don't care what you did over there. I'm not your husband. I don't agree to that. Well, I love the Puritans. And some of the Puritans who came here signed documents and said, we're God's nation. Just like the woman at the docks might say, she's my wife. And God said, you're not my nation. The church is my nation. The church is my bride. And by the way, I'm not a bigamist. God's not a bigamist. How many brides does he have? One. That's all he's got. He's got one bride. It is the church. He's got one nation. Every nation in this age is Babylon. 
Now, some Babylons are more closely aligned to God's word and God's ways than other Babylons. And it's certainly easier. And if I'm given the choice and the preference, I like a Babylon that's more lined up with God's words. But make no mistake, it's always got Babylon written over the door. Always. It's the age in which we live. You are an alien, you are a stranger, and so am I. And so our calling, when we say Christian citizenship, here's what Christian citizenship is not. It is not to make America Christian again. It never was a Christian nation. It never will be a Christian nation because it's a theological impossibility, just like some other woman telling me she's my wife. It's not possible. You don't get to decide that. We don't get to decide that. As aliens and strangers, our primary call and concern is not politics, but rather the gospel and fulfilling God's individual callings in our life. That is our primary concern. For some, politics is a primary call. We have a man right here among us who makes his living by consulting with political candidates and working, and that is his primary calling. For the rest of us, it's not our primary calling, despite the fact of what we spend our time posting about on social media, which would make me think that it might be our primary calling, but it's not. It is not our primary calling. It's not even a secondary calling for most of us. It's simply a one aspect of what it means to be a Christian citizen, okay? Now, this is important because when Christians look to politics to solve our nation's deepest problems, it's a sure sign we don't understand we're aliens and strangers. Can I tell you, no matter who wins in November, it is not going to even touch the deepest problems our nation faces. Can I tell you, it does not matter what laws Congress passes tomorrow. The law cannot change the human heart. Read Paul in Romans chapter 7. Paul says the law, God's law, God's very word, Paul says, came in, but the law was powerless to change me. Let me tell you something. If God's word, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way through, is if that law is powerless to change the human heart and only the gospel can, do not think they're going to come up with something in the U.S. Capitol that's going to fix the human heart. Okay? They are not going to come up with any such thing. And Christians need to be aliens and strangers to testify to other people. Politics is not the answer. It is not our deepest hope. It is not what we are looking to. We have a far deeper hope, a far deeper foundation, which is God and his gospel. Okay? Now, now I'll move on and I'll get to the question. So... I could keep on preaching on this, Calby. Thank you. I heard somebody say last week, telling a preacher amen is like telling a dog sick him. So you just keep going and I'll. Okay, living as Christian citizens, and I don't even need much encouragement anyway. So how do we live as Christian citizens? With, with Peter laying that base, what does he then go on and tell us? Well, he gives us a whole bunch of practical ways we are Christian citizens. First, Christian citizens live holy lives abstaining from sin. This is your call as a Christian citizen. You live a holy life and you abstain from sin. Notice what he says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, what's the very first thing he urges us to do? Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. 
the Greek word there is literally fleshly lust, and I'm going to come back to why that, that phrase is important. And he's saying, abstain from these sinful desires. Now, I want you to notice, they war against your soul. They are, they are uh, sinful desires. They are fleshly lust. They are deeply rooted within us. Here's one of the false ideas in our culture that we need people to be Christian citizens against. It's whatever I feel very deeply, that must be how I'm supposed to behave. That is no way to live life. Let me tell you, I got all kinds of things I feel really deeply that if I engaged in, y'all would be watching me on a video cast from jail somewhere. Okay? You just would. There have been a number of people who would have been buried long ago if I had simply followed my deepest desires. Okay? In fact, I sit down every other Friday right now in the grand jury room in Anne Arundel County, and I hear some things, and my number one vote is, how about if you just give me this guy's address, and I'll save us the rest of our time, and I'll make sure you don't find the body when I'm done, and I'm not joking. There are some people doing some sick things out there, and if I followed my own desires, I would set aside God's way, God's system of justice, and I'd go after my own way, and you've got your own ways. Just because something feels deep-rooted within me does not mean it's right. And so Peter says, look, this stuff is warring against your soul. It is in there. It is eating away. Now, he's particularly here clearly thinking about sins that you could phrase partying and sexual sin. That's what Peter's thinking about here. Now, how do I know that? Because he doesn't unpack it here. Well, he comes back to this topic in 1 Peter 4, 1 to 5, near the end of this section, and he uses the same word a couple times. I'm going to read it to you briefly. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. First off, notice, to resist sin is suffering. It's not easy. Okay, the Christian life is not for, for us to sit back in the easy chair. There is a struggle against sin. Notice in verse 2, as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires. The word desire, Greek word is epithumia. It's the same word as lust in 1 Peter 2.11 or those desires there. It's the same Greek word that he's using, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Here's how he's going to describe these things. Living in debauchery, lust, same word again, epithumia, Uh, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. This is how he's defined it. Now, that's three of the four times the word epithumia occurs in 1 Peter. It's 1 Peter 2.11 and these two times here. They clearly are the same thing that he's got in mind. And Peter says, this is what I'm talking about. It's debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. Notice it's the same thing. He says the pagans are choosing to do it. And he's, we're going to talk in a minute about how we live among the pagans. It's literally among the Gentiles is what it says in the Greek. So notice here, it's the same thing. Christians cannot live lives that are characterized by this. That's the first call of a Christian citizen right here. Not tweeting things about politics, but living a life that is distinct from the culture. Christian citizenship is a call to living a holy, godly life in the midst of a sinful, ungodly culture, no matter the cost. And let me tell you, here's where aliens and strangers comes in. Notice what Peter says in verses 4 and 5, is he says, they, the the pagans, the Gentiles among whom you are living, think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. 
And then he says, but they're going to have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So notice here, he's saying there's a cost. If you start living godly and holy, if the gospel is at work in your life and you start living distinct from the culture, the culture does not applaud you. Some Christians today are acting like we're living in this strange time that people don't like it when I live for Jesus. What have we been, delusion have we been under? Jesus himself told us if they treated me this way, what do you think they're going to do to you? right? I mean, and Jesus was perfect. They had no reason to treat him that way. They got plenty of reason to treat me that way, but they'll treat me even in the areas where I haven't done wrong. And Peter says, don't think it's strange that this is what's going to happen. You're, you're going to be treated this way. He actually says the same thing in verse 12. We'll come back and see in just a minute. He says, they accuse you of doing wrong. Here's the reality. We live in a culture and we always have where we are going to be out of step with the culture morally. That's the first call of Christian citizenship. You will always be out of the step with the culture morally. It may be a different thing at different times. Right now, there is massive sexual confusion in our culture. In the 1960s, to be a Christian citizen would have been to stand up and say, you cannot say that God treats whites and blacks differently. You just simply can't do it. Now, sad to say, a lot of Christian citizenship was lacking in the 1960s, okay? Was simply was not there. It does not matter what age you are in, there are things where our culture is out of step with God's word. And Christian citizenship says, I'm going to be in step with God and out of step with the culture morally. Now, second point, Peter then goes on and says, Christian citizens devote themselves to good work. Negatively, we do not engage in the sinful characteristics of our culture. Positively, we devote ourselves to good works. Notice verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that even though they're accusing you of doing wrong, they're going to have to glorify God on the day he visits us. So it's not only abstain from sin, it is be devoted to good. So what this means, and notice he says, live such good lives among the pagans, and this is not a word for the people who were devoted to pagan religion. It's literally the word Gentiles, which these people were Gentiles that Peter's writing to, but he's saying, but now you're God's Israel. And so you're like Israel among the nations. And so here's your call. It's the same call Israel had. You're supposed to live holy and you're supposed to be devoted to good. And notice you do it among the pagans. Now, see, when I say the first couple things I said, which is we're in Babylon and and look, we're going to have to live distinct lives, and they might even start heaping abuse on you. Here's what we want to do. I want to found the Bay Ridge Monastery, and we'll only send people out on runs every once in a while to get a little food and water, right? There are many Christians today referring to what they call the Benedict Option, which is to say this is like after Rome fell, we're living in that period, and Benedict the monk came along, and he set up all of these monasteries. And there was good that came out of those monasteries, make no mistake, okay? We, we have, like, a lot of ancient literature, including a lot of copies of Scripture, because of those monks. But at its core, it's the wrong approach. I get why we want to live in a monastery, but you can't be doing good works and living good lives among pagans if you're in a monastery somewhere. And what it is, is it's the simple fact, see, why do we do that? Because I don't like the tension of trying to live holy in an unholy culture. 
I don't like the pain and the price that comes when I'm trying to be faithful to Jesus and people are getting on my back. I don't like living in a culture where they put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, light for dark and dark for light. They call ugly beautiful and beautiful ugly. I don't like that. And I have no choice. We are sent by Jesus into this culture. It's what we're called to do. So we have to live among them, and we have to do good works. And notice, we do this even when they are accusing us of doing wrong. He says, even though they accuse you of doing wrong, you're living good lives, you're doing good works among them. He picks this up in verse 23, I won't put it there, where he says, you're following after Jesus. When they insult, you don't insult back. When they speak evil of you, you bless them. When they persecute you, you do good to them. That's Peter's point. And we all say, hey, man, that sounds awesome, right? I mean, I like it when somebody slanders me, says false, nasty things about me. There's nothing in me that wants to respond in kind. I mean, do y'all have that problem still? Unholy people, right? I mean, or do you think my response is more like, oh, you're going to say that about me? Well, I'm going to chop you off at the knees. See, that's our response, but we cannot do that. Christian citizenship calls us to simply be good, kind, thoughtful neighbors. When your next-door neighbor is being a jerk, who would rather Christian citizenship just be vote? It's a whole lot easier, isn't it? That's not what the Scripture tells us. I might point out these guys didn't even have the option of voting. So that might not be central to Christian citizenship since all Christians, all times, all places do have that call and very few of them have been able to go into a ballot box, okay? It can't be the core of what Christian citizenship means. So he moves on and he says, thirdly, Christian citizens fulfill their callings in the world. Notice here he says in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans. Well, we might ask ourselves, well, what does that look like? I won't put it up there because it runs from chapter 2, verse 13 through chapter 3, verse 17. And he lists all the areas of life where we live out our callings and our relationships in society, and he gives instructions on how to fulfill them. Peter talks about Christians fulfilling their callings to the government, to employers, to spouses, to their neighbors, especially unbelieving neighbors. He lists all of these. Now, I've taught a lengthy series in the past on calling. And if you go to the church website, and you go out there and you look under series, you can hit one that's, that is labeled called. I almost said called, called. It's the title of the series is called. And you can click on it. We did like 10-week study on this on all the various areas where we are called in Scripture and how we're supposed to fulfill them. But this is an essential component in being a Christian citizen. You all are going to be Christian citizens today and tomorrow. You're going to be doing that. The only question is, are we going to be doing a good job or a bad job? Am I going to be fulfilling my calling or am I going to be failing at my calling? Now, what do I mean by that? Most of our life 
is spent in fulfilling our various callings where God serves other people through us. I love Martin Luther's idea. It's not even just that I love God by loving people or by serving people. It's that God is at work serving other people through my life and my actions. That's what callings are. And what that means is in here today, there are young moms who tomorrow are going to be caring for a child. They're going to be changing diapers. They're going to be doing it today. That is Christian citizenship right there. You are caring for and raising the next generation. And God is serving that child through you. And I might say better through you than through me when it's a dirty diaper. That's, that's what it is. That's calling. We, we want to get all of these big ideas and God says, be a faithful parent. Christian citizenship is a mechanic fixing a car honestly and competently. When they are, they're acting as a Christian citizen, they're serving their neighbor, particularly if they've got mechanical skills like me, and I look at that engine, and it might as well be the space shuttle, right? Because I have no idea. I'm so glad I told somebody yesterday, I've got a mechanic I trust. And it's good to know that because when he tells me that this is going to cost $1,000, I don't sit there and say, is this guy ripping me off? Because I have no idea. I have no idea, okay? Is it good to have people we can trust like that? Be that person. That is Christian citizenship. A doctor helping a patient with all of their skill and care is acting as a Christian citizen, serving their neighbor. Now, unbelievers can do these same things, but as believers, we're doing it specifically knowing God is serving this person through me. This is, this is the image of God that I am serving, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, and this is God's call for me. And I'm doing it with the hope that when Jesus returns, there's going to be glory to him because of the way I live. A lawmaker crafting good zoning or traffic laws to increase human flourishing is acting as a Christian citizen. They are serving their neighbor. Every one of these are ways that we do it. And this is an essential component. If you want to be a good Christian citizen, then tomorrow recognize you're not putting in time because I got to get a paycheck. You are saying God is serving others through me. That's my call. God himself is doing this. If you can get this, you'll start seeing you live in a God-drenched, God-saturated universe. He is everywhere at work, and he wants to be at work in and through you. Fourth area Peter brings up is Christian citizens are humble, considerate peacemakers. Now, I'm actually going to turn. Peter kind of brings this up as you read all of the things, and it's it's a little bit more spread out. I'm going to turn to a concentrated place where Paul is dealing with the same subject in Titus chapter 3. And in the first eight verses, he's giving instructions for Titus to teach believers. I'm just going to do one and two and then eight because three to seven, should not be surprising, is the gospel. And it's the gospel is spreading out and doing this. But notice what Paul says. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good, notice the phrase there for good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility as long as people are doing that to you. Is that what Paul says? To towards who? Oh, so what if they're not peaceful? I'm peaceful. What if they're arrogant? I'm humble. There's no excuse for anything else. Christian citizenship. Then he comes back in verse 8 and says, this is a trustworthy saying. 
And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Notice the stress on good works. We've been seeing in Peter. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So here he's describing a life of obedience and service. And he says that life is lived out of a character that is humble and considerate, even to those who are arrogant and inconsiderate to us. Now, as a young man, I swallowed hard at these verses. I never understood liberals who wanted to like cut miracles out of the Bible. I would have chosen stuff like this. I don't like this. This is not my natural nature, okay? You get arrogant, especially towards my wife, your life might be over soon. That's my natural response, okay? But Paul says you can't live that way. And he's, he's echoing here Jeremiah 29, where Jeremiah says, look, you exiles are there, and you got a bunch of people who are saying, don't worry about it. It's all going to end soon. And Jeremiah says, no, it's not. You're not going home. Your children aren't going home. Your grandchildren might be the ones to make it home. So settle down, get married, build houses, and seek the shalom of Babylon. Babylon? Pagan Babylon? Babylon that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple? Yes. Yahweh says, seek the peace of that place. Because if it is full of peace, shalom, prosperity, you'll be full of peace, shalom, prosperity. And if it's not, you won't be either. Okay, where do we live? Babylon. Say, where do we live? Babylon. That's where you live. So we are called to seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Now, this is particularly important at this point in our culture. Another thing that y'all probably have not noticed is we're a little divided right now. Has anybody else noticed that? People are arguing with one another. We're dealing with all kinds of problems. We live in a soundbite social media culture that is given to bombastic, divisive statements that do not serve peace, but rather increase strife. That is, that is exactly what is going on in our culture. You want to be a Christian citizen, don't contribute to that brain-dead process tomorrow, okay? Don't participate in that. Do not give in to that foolishness and arrogance that is going on. We have real problems. I'm going to make an appeal here to you. Please, please, dear God, if you're going to get on social media, every time you get on, I want you to have a couple of Proverbs come up to mind, okay? A fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing his own opinions. I would pass a law tomorrow that that would have to pop up with every keystroke on Facebook and Twitter. I would love that. I would love that, okay? Even a fool is thought wise and discerning if he holds his tongue. And the Hebrew includes and lets his fingers run across the keyboard. Okay, stops it. Okay? Do, do we believe and understand that or do we engage because, well, they engaged. They showed a video for their side, so I'm going to put up a video for my side. And all we're doing is undermining shalom in Babylon. That's all we're doing by doing this. Social media is the wrong tool. Can I point out to you, we have racial tensions in this culture that go back 350 years. And my response is, I'm going to resolve this in a tweet. Are you kidding me? That's inane. There is no way. All you're going to do is make the problem worse. What if you were laying down and you had a medical problem and I walked in and said, 
Listen, uh, I, have a, I have a degree in surgery for this, for brain surgery from Johns Hopkins. So lay back, be calm. Nurse, hand me the chainsaw. Who in here would say, this is awesome. He's going to use a chainsaw to cut my head open. But what if I have a degree from Johns Hopkins? Why don't you trust me? Is that the wrong tool for the job? Social media is like doing surgery with a chainsaw. The only outcome is further destruction. Post pictures of your kids and leave. If you want to engage in our cultural divides, write a blog, which I won't subscribe to, but go ahead and do it, okay? You're not going to do it by endless social media posts. I'm ranting a little bit here, but I am seeing this, and we need to understand we are at a time where we need Christian citizens. And we don't just need Christian citizens on the, that Tuesday in November. We need people who right now will not engage in the foolishness of our culture. Soundbite social media is not going to solve these problems. What might help is actually sitting down with another human being. And God forbid, one that actually might disagree with you and say, talk to me. Can, can you explain to me how you see this and why, and can we have actual conversation rather than just posting past one another, okay? That would be astounding Christian citizenship. I'll move on. Last point. Last point. I'm a little passionate about that one if you can't tell. Christian citizens should make the prospering of the gospel their first priority prospering of the gospel. And this goes back, peace and shalom can only come through the gospel. So notice how Peter ends up verse 12. He says, dear friends, I'm urging you as aliens and strangers to do all these things we've been talking about so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. All of this is built on our new status as believers that you were taken out of darkness and pulled into light. You were, you were under wrath and now you are under mercy. You were lost, not part of God's people. And now you are the people of God. And in the face of that gospel, and in the face of that mercy, Peter says, you have got to live among all your neighbors, recognizing one day every one of them is going to stand in front of God. And what are my actions doing in reference to that? are my actions promoting the gospel. The gospel is first in priority in everything we do. We are aware of the coming day of judgment, and it has got to motivate us. Now, what that means, if I stood there on that day, and there was the person I argued with, I think, man, every time they had one, I got them. I got them. And then Jesus says, away from me to them, and they're lost. And I say, my mouth wasn't filled with the gospel, but I got them. They came at me, and I had a better cut down than they had. Who thinks I would say, oh, this is awesome. You want to know how to be a good Christian citizen? Live in light of the day. Today, C.S. Lewis said, kingdoms and civilizations rise and fall. But the person you're working next to tomorrow is eternal. And a civilization, Western civilization, is as a gnat next to them. But we forget that. We forget it's those people that we live with, we work with, we play with, all of this stuff. That's the people that are eternal. And they're the image of God. And one day, God's going to visit us. He's going to come back. 
and every one of us are going to stand in front of him. If I live in light of that, that might change the way I respond to my neighbors. Now, none of this, let me say, I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't have positions. We, we, we should. We have to. It's part of it. But we have so reduced it down to that. And friends, what it betrays is I don't really think I'm an alien and a stranger. This is my country, my home, and I want it to be the way I want it to be. That's not our call. That's not who we are. Our citizenship is heaven. And I want to be in a populous country when I get there. And I don't want to do anything that undermines that. Better I bite my tongue till it bleeds on some secondary or tertiary or whatever comes after that airy words. And I promote the gospel. And I'm telling you, I've listened time and time and time again where people who formerly were God-haters, what turned them around was not brilliant arguments, it was not good cut-downs, it was not debating points. It was people doing the very things Peter talked about. They loved me. They cared for me in the midst of my sin and rebellion and confusion, and they extended grace to me. And that's what God calls us to do. So how do we apply the word? And we'll come to the table. It's real simple. I want to ask us one question. Am I following God's ways or the world's? Here's the difficulty. You're a citizen of America for most of us here. There's a few folks from Germany today that are citizens of Germany. But we're citizens here. We've got that. The problem is it's very easy for me to follow the ways of the world. That comes natural. But am I doing that or am I following God's way? See, this world thinks this life is all there is. And so it stakes everything on the power play of politics. If this life is all you got, then I'm going to fight to the death to get it the way I want it now. But if you're an alien and a stranger, you know this life is, is broken, and the only way it's ever going to be what I really want is when Jesus comes back. And I'm not voting him back. I'm not doing any of that. So that's not going to happen. And so it changes our perspective. This world stakes everything on the power of play of politics. But we are called to be aliens and strangers to this entire way of thinking. Right now, here's one of the things going on with our seven young folks over in Cambodia. They are watching Cambodian cultural practices that make perfect sense to the Cambodians. And our seven are going, why in the world do you do it that way? Right? When you watch this world go after power play of politics and their way of living, your response ought to be exactly that. Why in the world are you doing it that way? That makes no sense in light of the way things actually are, which is this life is not all there is. And so my primary calling is the kingdom. Not the kingdom of this world, but the kingdom of God. And then serving my neighbor through the other various callings. My primary method is a godly life that doesn't give in to sin, but rather serves others in good works. My actions are to be characterized by humility and being considerate of others and promoting peace. So, and everything I'm doing, the gospel is primary. So with that standard there, this is the question then. Does that characterize the way I'm living? Or... If just the way I'm conducting myself on a daily basis, do I look and say, that's just the way everybody in the world does it? You look just like every other American. I mean, you added a little Bible on. You, you know, 
you've, they've got their club and you've got your club. Yours is just called church. But at its core, it's the same thing. Because friends, that would be a betrayal of the kingdom. That'd be a betrayal of Christian citizenship. That would be a betrayal of the gospel. So which way characterizes the way I live each day? Do I live God is working through me to serve my neighbor, no matter how they've treated me. I live with, in light of the gospel. I live in light of eternity. Or do I live like this present age is my true home and my true time? And therefore, I'm going to get mine one way or the other. Peter's calling us and saying, be aliens, be strangers, recognize no matter what we do, this world is always going to be imperfect. Next week, in fact, I'm going to be teaching out of Romans 8.18 where Paul tells us our present sufferings aren't worthy of being compared with the glory that's to be revealed. We're going to unpack some of that and look at a little bit of that. And we, we need to have an eternal focus shaping who we are and everything we do. And that includes our Christian citizenship. What makes our citizenship distinctly Christian is that it's not just focused on this age. Everybody's is focused on this age. Ours is to bring in that entirely different perspective. And so with that, we're going to come to the table because this table reminds us of the gospel. It reminds us of our true status, that we were aliens from God's kingdom. And now we've been brought in as citizens in his kingdom. And it also reminds us that as a result of that, we are aliens now to this very age in which we live. But we live in light of until he comes. This table reminds us of this status. And I want to encourage us this morning, a couple of things. If you're a visitor here, you do not have to be a member of this church to come and participate at this table. However, you do have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to be a member, a citizen in God's kingdom, which means you know that you are wicked before God, that you are fallen, that you sin in thought, word, and deed every day, and that your only hope of the mercy of God is that Jesus lived a perfect sinless life, that he sacrificed himself in behalf of our sins, that he was under God's righteous wrath, that he bore that, that he was dead, he was buried, and that he has been literally, bodily, physically raised from the dead and is right now that way seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. If you believe that, please partake. If you don't, this meal's not for you. It's for those who are citizens of God's kingdom. It's their meal. And I encourage you, if you don't, please see me afterwards because I want the privilege of sharing with you why you should believe that very thing. As we come to the table, I want to encourage you, if you're sitting here and you're saying, wow, I have not been a very good Christian citizen, I have good news for you. Body was broken and blood was shed precisely because of that kind of sin. And for all of us to come here and let's be focused back on the gospel. The gospel is not what we do. The gospel is not what's going on in our culture around us. Friends, th this is good news. This existed before America was even known or understood by those who were writing the Scripture. They didn't even know it was here, okay? It existed long before we were a nation. And should Jesus tarry, we might be an interesting artifact of history by that time when he comes back, but this gospel will still exist. 
and Christians will still be gathering around a table just like this and be saying, he was broken, his blood was shed, that I might be forgiven. America has risen, and we might fall, but the gospel, the kingdom will continue forever and ever. And that, friends, is very good news. For what I received from the Lord, I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you this morning that we celebrate a gospel that is centered on you and what you have done and not us and what we have done. And Father, we thank you that we can come to this table because you have taken us. Most of us in this room were Gentiles, cut off from citizenship in your people, but you have brought us in by the blood of Jesus Christ. So Father, this morning we give you thanks. Holy Spirit, come and minister to your people in this sacrament, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. We will take them together in uh, three or four minutes once they're distributed. And I encourage you to be focusing on the gospel, what it means for you and your salvation. Lord Jesus Christ, we hold this bread which represents your body and we say that you truly are glorious. You are our creator. So it is right that we would owe you everything. But you are also our redeemer. So we doubly owe you all that we have. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We hated you. We hated one another. We were cut off from the people of God. We were, we were self-loathing. We were destructive in our behavior. Our every word and thought and deed breathed out rebellion against you. But you, O oh God, who are rich in mercy, had mercy upon us. And Christ came, and he lived in our place. He was obedient where we were disobedient. And he lived righteously, fulfilling God's covenant law. He died in our place, bearing the wrath that was ours. And he has been raised to give us forgiveness of sins and justification and to give us victory over death. And so, Lord, we hold this bread this morning and we say thanks be to God for the gospel. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ and his work in our behalf. He is all our hope. We forsake our words. We forsake our works 
We forsake our own ways, and we look to you and say, our trust is in Jesus Christ, and he is more than enough. Thanks be to God. Take and eat. Father, we hold up this cup of the covenant, which reminds us that in the gospel, you have made covenant with us. You are a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And in that, you have not only forgiven our sins, but you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. You have taken us who were dead and made us alive. You have taken we who were blind and deaf and made us to see and hear. You've taken we who had no desire for you or your kingdom and turned us into those who thirst for the living God and his ways. And Father, we are sustained every day by your covenant mercy, which is new every morning. Oh God, how grateful we are that you have done all of this through the blood of Christ, not by our works, but by his. And Father, we thank you that though we falter, and we are too often more faithful as citizens of this world in this age than we are as citizens of your kingdom, God, you hold on to us and you keep us because of the covenant which is sealed by the blood of Christ. So Father, as those who are cognizant of that, we lift this cup up and we say, Oh, thanks be to God for the blood of Christ that was shed for us and that has made us citizens of the kingdom of God now and forever. Thanks, oh God. Take and drink. Spirit of the living God, oh Holy Spirit, it is you who in your might raised us up when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. It is through you that we are now seated in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. It is you who dwell within us. It is you who are writing God's law on our hearts. And it is you who empower us to live not according to the sinful nature and the sinful mind, which is death, but according to the very word and law of God, which is life. Holy Spirit, we are dependent upon you. And you who inspired the word, you who have spoken to our hearts this morning, you are able to empower us to go out and live more faithfully tomorrow. Not because we're doing it to earn favor. That is freely given us in Jesus but because we want to be good citizens of your kingdom. So Holy Spirit, I pray that this time tomorrow when we are out serving in our various callings, you would bring back to our minds and prompt us and say, how can the Father serve that person through you? Father God, would you work by your Holy Spirit to empower us to be faithful citizens of your kingdom to love our neighbor, regardless of how they may act. And Jesus, we ask that as we do this, he would bring glory to you on that day when you visit us. Father, I pray that as we go forth, that this very week you would 
use us, we who have been so deeply blessed that you would make us a blessing to those around us. And especially as we serve in all the ways we've talked about, Lord, I pray that the gospel would prosper through us, that the gospel would prosper here. Lord, most important of all, we long to see our neighbors, our family members, our loved ones who do not know you, who have not tasted this mercy. We ask, oh God, that they would taste of your mercy through the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We will conclude with a word of benediction. In the light of Peter's words, I can't think of anything more appropriate than God's blessing upon our father Abraham. So I encourage you as God's people, as God's nation, as the blessed to receive this blessing and then go be a blessing. Yahweh says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Go in the blessing of God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.